You've tuned into episode six, series two of the All Things Mental Health podcast. I'm Aniska, your presenter, and today it's a pleasure to have Dr. Anna Colton with us. Anna is a clinical psychologist with over 15 years experience specializing in working with children and adolescents who have a whole range of emotional and behavioral difficulties. Today, Anna and I will be discussing distress tolerance in young minds. Anna, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Before we delve in, Anna, would you tell us a little bit more about your work? Because I know it spans across a range of specialisms from eating disorders, anxiety and stage fright, including helping performers in the top of their field, as well as working with barristers at the bar, to name a few things. (laughs) Yeah, I do have some what sound like quite disparate, quirky areas of specialism. So as as you said in your introduction just there, yes, I I have for my entire career specialised in adolescent mental health in particular and eating disorders. That's very long standing, 20 years of that. And within that, I've also now um, developed a, a niche, I suppose, in performers. I've worked on many, many of the West End shows, Billy Elliot, Matilda, Judy Bang Bang, Mary Poppins, to help enhance their performance, to help with any difficulties they have, to work a lot with anxiety in that context. And then I also um, will do eating disorders across the lifespan. Um, And I work also a lot with barristers and their clerks, which is particularly quirky. And they do sound very disparate, but all of those things that I've described are tied together, I think, um, with a thread of quite a lot of biology involved and neurology now anxiety is a very physiological thing there's a lot of there's a lot of physiology and anxiety and and that is a thread that runs through there's a lot of physiology in the eating disorders you can't do eating disorder work if you don't understand what's happening in the brain and the body so that thread links and so I think you know that there is that neurological biological physiological thread runs through most of what I do I'm quite brain-based in the way I think and in the way I work with people because I think we can't just pretend that it's all your thoughts and your thoughts have no link to your body or your brain or your mind or what's going on with your physiology. Anna, would you tell us what we mean by distress tolerance and how can it be related to young minds in particular? We we cannot go through life, none of us can go through life without experiencing distress. And distress can be anything from feeling a bit worried to a bereavement, to a trauma, to um to anything. It's distress. It's when we feel upset or we feel whatever it is, but it's not a, it's not a feeling that we enjoy. That's distress. And it's a life skill to be able to have strategies that enable you to tolerate that distress because if you can't tolerate that distress, you have to develop you have to develop some way to deal with the feelings or they're just overwhelming. And that's when we see techniques when people's distress tolerance techniques aren't quite so strong that's where we see things like the eating disorders or self-harm emerge and that's very common of course in the adolescent population as the brain rewires and so you know that that's why so many young people struggle so much because the brain's rewiring and people are processing with the wrong bits as that developmental process unfolds plus there's of course all the hormone development and the sexual development and and the emotional development and the social development so it's a, a really tumultuous period um from about 10 to about 25, really, Um, which I know is a long span, but some people are early developers, some people are late. So, you know, it's over about a 15-year period 
the broadest. And whilst there's so much um, chaos systemically for people, you know, there's a lot more distress because life feels much less stable. So that's how it applies, I think, to the younger minds, um, because it's just a very difficult time. You know, even even university, if you're leaving, when you finish your A-levels or you're leaving home, you're going to uni, you've got separations, you're having to negotiate new friendships, new relationships. How's your course? Do you enjoy it? Where do you live? Who do you hang out with? Who do you want to be? All those tasks of identifying yourself and finding your cohort. Um, and there is always distress. So then the question is, how do you tolerate it? And how do you tolerate it effectively without having to numb it or get rid of it? Because when we try and numb it or suppress it or block it or get rid of it, we end up utilizing strategies that work for a very short period of time. And then we're left with increased distress. So they don't work in the long run. So I know, as you were saying, you have this interest in the interplay between psychology, physiology, biology and neurology. And what can this interplay then reveal to us about distress tolerance, do you think? I think that that interplay is is partly vital because when people understand what's going on in their mind and in their body, that understanding can bring to light a pathway through that isn't available if we don't have that understanding. So, for example, just to take one example, anxiety is deeply physiological if you, you know, you're primal brain detects threat it hits you with adrenaline as that courses through your system you know there are a huge number of physiological symptoms that are purely caused by adrenaline for example palpitations feeling sick um, stomach upset um, tunnel vision sweating if people don't know that that's physiological they think there's something really wrong and they become even more frightened and then they have to engage in getting rid of behaviors, at least if they know this is what happens, this is an adrenal response, they can say, okay, I've obviously had a surge of adrenaline right now. Here are the things I can do to calm it down. And I can remind myself that just because I'm feeling these things, it doesn't actually mean I'm in danger. I just know this is what's happening in my, my in my body. So I think it's about finding a pathway through, actually. And, and another example is that, that for example, with an anorexia, um, actually starvation changes the brain. So you have to reverse that before you can work with the emotions. Because when you're working with a brain that is starved, the cognitions, the thoughts that people are having are not the real thoughts that, that they had prior to a, a significant weight drop. So you have to get the weight back up so you can get the real thoughts back up because the starvation cognitions lift. Again, you just have to know that. Because if you don't, you end up doing redundant pieces of work that don't help you out very much. I know you've done lots of work with schools, which has made you see the importance of teaching distress tolerance from a young age. Why is this so vital then? If you don't have distress tolerance skills, then what do you do with that distress? Right. How do you deal with it? Because it's going to come in your life because that's life. Life happens. Distress happens. The best examples I can give you are. When people don't have very good, young people don't have very good distress tolerance skills, they find other ways to manage it. So, for example, people are feeling really anxious or upset. They aren't able to talk about it. They don't know what's happening to them. They don't have a supportive network around them. That's when strategies like self-harm, using food, um, more likely to use alcohol or drugs or experiment with those things, because all of those strategies numb feelings. Right. So when we starve, we numb our feelings. When you binge and you purge, there's no time to think about what's going on. When you engage, when, when you're you know, using alcohol, it numbs feelings. So they're all numbing techniques. They're really effective in the short term. So, you know, for example, if you take alcohol for the couple of hours that you're, you're, you're really drunk, you're numb. However, it wears off and you're left with more distress. 
So then what do people do? They need to numb again and they use more and more and more. And that's what happens with, with, with the eating disorders. That's what happens with self-harm. You know, people might start with self-harming once or twice and it escalates and escalates because the duration for which it's helpful becomes shorter and shorter and shorter if the benefits wear off. And so it's needed more and more and more. And before you know where you're at, you've got a significant mental health issues going on. Actually, when you peel them all away, what it comes back to was an inability to have other strategies to tolerate the distress. That's not to say the distress is easy to manage and it's not to say it's fun to feel it. It's not. You've got to have some really helpful strategies to learn how to manage it. And one of them, the most important, I think, particularly in primary schools, is, is giving kids an emotional vocabulary. So they've got the words. Because they don't have the words to describe what they're feeling. They're just overwhelmed by feelings that they can't describe and no one can help them out with, right? And then what do they do when they're overwhelmed by feeling? They might hit, they might bite, they might kick, or they might withdraw, or they may be very clingy. But we see a whole host of behavioral difficulties that often come because there's not the emotional vocabulary. So I think it's, it's a double thing. You have to have emotional vocab to be able to find the strategies because a lot of the strategies are talking about it, sharing it, understanding it, knowing that you need to do things that often feel contrary to what you want to do. So for example, if you're feeling very low, the natural thing is to want to withdraw. Actually, that makes things worse because it creates isolation. You get stuck in your head, you get lost in your thoughts. So when you're feeling really low, you want to withdraw, but you need to understand why you need to do the opposite to that. But if you don't know, if you're not taught distress tolerance, if you're not taught that actually part of living life is tolerating upset, is tolerating all, all surviving upset and getting through difficult experiences. If that is not something you're, you're, you're brought up to know, then you just feel utterly overwhelmed by feelings. What do you think then young people should be aware of when it comes to distress tolerance and, and growing up in the sense of, what do you encourage them themselves to try and tap into to help them? Because we know that education does require a change in the way that it teaches you about this, like you said, through this emotional labelling, giving you the language and toolkit to help you understand. But as that's something that's more of a long-term thing that we hope would improve over time, what do you think people can actually do themselves to try and help themselves through this process of growing up, this young mind development? in relation to distress tolerance? One of the things that's really important is to be really clear that you can't avoid it. <laughs> I know that sounds probably quite obvious, but, you know, whenever I do a talk, I say, you know, it's a bit like going on a bear hunt. You know the book, We're Going on a Bear Hunt? Yes. Um, uh-oh, you know, grass, long wavy grass, or uh-oh, mud. And then there's the real, that well-known bit of the bear hunt. You can't go over it, can't go under it. We've got to go through it. And I really feel that that's the metaphor for life. We can't navigate. You know, we can't kind of circumnavigate. So actually, one of the things I think that's really important is, is being really quite explicit about that. You know, guys, you are going to have to go through tough times because life's shit. And so sometimes, you know, life is going to throw you a curveball and you're going to really struggle and you're going to feel crap and it's awful. So the question isn't whether or not that's going to happen. It's going to happen. The question is when. And the other question is, how do you get through it? So it's things like putting in place, you know, what are your hobbies? Do you, it's, that's why hobbies are so important because they give you an outlet and they keep your mind busy with something that you love. Friendships work on a number of levels. Of course, they give you social support. You know, you can talk to your friends. You, they can support you. You can support them. It's reciprocal. It feels comfortable. But also, you can, not in COVID necessarily, but hopefully soon, you can go out with your friends. You can hang out with them. You can be with them. So you have physical company. You might go and do something that's distracting. 
you know, crying, that's fine. You can do that too. It's an outlet. It's brilliant. You know, are you someone who needs to do exercise? So it's not just exercise because, you know, at school you have to do exercise, but is that a really good release for you? Do you like the endorphin high that exercise gives you? So what can you put into your life regularly to create an environment whereby when shit happens, you can survive it? So it's about, for me, it's about, you know, working out what things make you feel good, what things relieve, you know, everyday tensions and making sure that they become run of the mill. So that, for example, you, you know, if you, if you regularly have a girl's night or a lad's night or a date night, whatever it may be, whatever age you are, then if you start to cancel it regularly, there's a red flag, a red flag for you. And hopefully your mates will say to you, hang on, this is the second week in a row you cancelled, what's going on? But if that's not in place, then it can't drop off and no one can pick it up. So organizing your life in a way that you have protective factors all around, even when life is great, because life is great sometimes. So even when life is great, you've still got all those protective behaviors and those protective activities in. One, they protect you. But two, when life gets difficult and you, you notice them dropping off, people can raise a red flag. You can raise a red flag. You can notice that something's, something's happening. I also think actually that comedy is is a genius strategy. When you, when we laugh, we we get a chemical buzz, um, and we feel better. And so if there's comedy that you really like, watch it. It's really good. It takes your mind off whatever's happening, and it, it helps you out. And then of course there's my real thing that you know I'd love everybody to really understand that a thought is just thought. It's not a fact. Just because we think something doesn't mean it's true, right? Ever, you know, there's a, it's really tricky to teach that, I suppose. But, um, you know, a thought is just a thought. You know, I can be sitting here thinking I'm hungry or I'm tired. Doesn't, you know, or I'd love to go to sleep. If I'm thinking I'd love to go to sleep, doesn't mean I'm going to go to sleep right now. It could just be a thought that's in my mind. <laughs> they come in and out of our mind, thousands of them every day. A thought is just a thought. But we pay attention to the ones that have lots of emotional content for us. And lots of emotional content is usually, not all the time, but usually negative content. So when we have a thought go through our mind that's negative, we tend to go, oh, must pay attention. And then we start to believe what I would call the propaganda in our head that goes, must pay attention to this. It's really bad. Actually, it's probably no more real than I'd quite like to go to sleep now. I'm hungry. Why was was lunch in another two hours? Not always, but often. So a thought is just a thought. Just because you think something doesn't mean it's true. And just because you feel something doesn't mean it's true. So you can feel anxious, but it doesn't mean your life is in danger necessarily. So understanding that those two concepts, I think, is really fundamental to keeping mentally healthy. It's interesting as well, because when I've been going through um, different levels of university education, so I did my undergraduate at York and now I'm I'm in Oxford. And it's interesting to hear from different students you interact with on the hobbies note of things, particularly fascinating. People subconsciously don't realise how much it helps them until you actually open it up. And I think an issue as well is that when it comes to points of you need things to help you with with stress or distress or all these things, you don't know what to turn to because you haven't really thought about it and in this in this way that it's actually a pillar of support for you that's really useful. And so I came up with this idea, this where all this podcast came from was series one, was talking to these students about their different interests and outlets to help them with the hope that it could help someone else because they've gone, you know what, this actually genuinely helped me for all these reasons. And Anna, what's so fascinating is the array that you have, that you have people saying, you know, there was one guy telling me that he worked, used to work on hospital radio and going up to patients. And obviously now it's slightly different with a virus. They used to work in, in wards and go up to patients and get requests from them and talk to them about their favourite song and play it. And it create a lovely environment. And for him, that also helped him with his own mental health. And someone else is saying how music is theirs. So it's such a mix. And I think, you know, this this is really important because it's something that you can you know implement for yourself 
quite early to help you through and actually you don't realize how useful it really is and also it's really hard when life is tough to start something new it takes a lot of energy and a lot of motivation so it's brilliant when it's there already it's why for example people who are very into sport or very into music or very into drama um that's something that is ongoing and so actually it, it just becomes a part of life. That's why it's so great when something becomes a part of life. Because when you say to people who are depressed or anxious or really struggling, let's go and find a hobby. And it's, it's laughable, really. It's just too hard. Exactly. And on this realness note, this is another thing that I've been having, interestingly, been having conversations with lots of friends recently about. And we've been talking about how you can get so lost in these thoughts or in your brain that create this whole narrative for you. There's like we said, it's not real. It's not tangible. It's something that's just chattering away. So actually, sometimes I, I realized a couple of years ago, I was like, how can I sometimes, you know, what can I do myself to help you know, with this situation where this happens? Sometimes when you, especially when I'm overwhelmed, there's a lot of internal chatter of just negativity. So like, what can you do to, to help with that? And for me, and this is something I've been talking to friends about who recently have found it really helpful as well, is to go, okay, let's just pin, you know, take, take one out at a time. So we're going, right, I'm thinking this. Okay, so where's the factual information to support this claim? If, if, if I'm saying I'm incapable and I can't do this, well, what, can you give me some evidence? And actually, when you start opening it up, it's not, there's, there's no evidence to give. Actually, it's the counter. No, I managed to get through my day, actually, thank you. I did all these things and I'm actually doing okay. So you actually, you know, the, the real can really help you navigate it yourself too. Well, you've just, you've just outlined CBT. That's a whole CBT technique, finding the evidence beautifully outlined there. Um, but you're right, you know, it's okay. So that's great. Bring up the evidence, as you say. And, and it's surprising, isn't it? And sometimes you've got to be quite careful because, you know, you'll find evidence in your mind that actually also isn't quite true. So, you know, for example, instead of going, when I ticked five things off my to-do list, our mind might go, well, I had 15 things off my to-do list and I only ticked off five, so that was really rubbish. Whereas actually, I'd much rather someone, you know what, I ticked a third of my to-do list off today. That's brilliant. So it's, it's, you know, you've got to be quite mindful. I say not mindful, it's mindful of your mind, but careful of the way that your mind in a low period or an anxious period spins things. I think also through that, realising that you're human too, is is that key concept of especially nowadays with this to-do list problem and it's and even more so which can get amplified with the virus when you're at home your arm's going to be really effective and get through a billion things a day and think oh yeah i just turned some robot to get through all these different tasks and actually that's not what we're designed to do so i think again it's going like we said you know i've got through this many of my things but obviously i didn't get through the whole thing i'm not a robot i'm a human being who who some days will be more effective than other days but i'm not defined by a list and sometimes you think that this is who you are. I am this walking embodiment of tasks to do, which is not what we need. <laughs> but you're right, you know, and, and actually being human, sometimes, you know, I, I talk to people I'm working with, they'll say, oh, this happened and this happened. And then I felt really low and I didn't do what I needed to do or I did this nice. And, and what does that tell you about yourself? Well, I'm inadequate. And really? It tells you you're human, you know? And actually, one of the things that I, I think that helps in terms of distress tolerance, but if you think about what attracts us as human beings to each other, I think there's a, a large bucket of vulnerability and we find other people's vulnerability engaging, attractive, it makes us feel secure. Nobody really wants to hang out with a robot or someone who never, never lets their guard down. You feel you can't get in, you can't get to know them properly. So what is it that makes us really enjoy other people's company? There's a lot of vulnerability, other people's vulnerability that we we we're really attracted to we're hooked in by we're drawn towards 
Um, and sometimes spelling that out to people feels surprising or the response is one of surprise. Then it makes you go, how can you take that concept and apply it to yourself? Mm. If you're curious about people's vulnerability, how can I be curious about my own at the same time? Or how can I not be frightened of it? Because I think a lot of people are frightened of it. Well, I don't want to go, I'll come across as weak or I'll come across as vulnerable. But actually, that's quite nice. It can be something of a superpower occasionally. It doesn't always have to be something negative. It's actually something that people really appreciate. And it's, you know, it's a real quality. It's a human quality. It makes you unique to who you are as a person, like we said. Absolutely. So you stressed to me before about the I've got to get rid of it mentality that can drive unhealthy behaviour. What issues can this then create in relation to distress tolerance, do you think? You know, it's the addictions, it's the eating, it's the comp- it's anything compulsive where the effect is numbing. Getting rid of is either getting rid of or, or numbing. And I think actually people never manage to get rid of. We want to get rid of. I, I just want, I want to get rid of the anxiety. I want to get rid of the, the, the low mood. I hate it. And actually getting rid, it's, it's not possible. It's how do, we, how do we get it to a point where actually we're able to go, on the whole, I'm I'm 85%, life is fine. You know, so I think when we go and set ourselves up to get rid of, one, it can't happen, and two, it's pretty unrealistic. So any behaviour that people uh, engage in to get rid of, it, it is usually something compulsive or addictive. And that's, that's of course, the broadest brushstroke approach, but it is. It's, it's what can I do to get rid of the pain? How do I get rid of the pain and the upset? How do I numb it or how do I do something where I'm not noticing it and not feeling it? And you can do that through all sorts of things. Like as we were discussing, you know, activities, hobbies, exercise, comedy, all of those things which are healthy, seeing friends, sharing your feelings, realising actually that you're not on your own. Because when you are feeling upset and distressed, when you are struggling with your mental health, it's very lonely or it can be very lonely. So one of the benefits of talking to other people is knowing that actually you're not alone. But the more you do that, the more you realise that most people struggle to a greater or a lesser extent. It's a much more sympathetic, compassionate world and a world where you actually are able to connect and have relationships. And so when things are difficult, you don't have to numb all the feelings or try and get rid of them. A lot of people, when, you, when I've been talking to lots of young people, what's really interesting is they have, I can't get rid of mentality in relation to so many different things. So whether that's, for example, I'm experiencing distress and I, I want to get rid of this. And it's you, you get, you know, because you think that keeping things that are unsettling in your system is not good. And, you know, we all get taught to quickly deal with the problem and then move on and whatever. So in your head, you think I need to get rid of this. And even though that might not lead to you doing something like a specific action or whatever, it's this idea that I need to go and find something to whatever. So it can then lead to you creating a whole nother internal issue because you become so anxious and so overwhelmed by this kind of voice of trying to get you to get rid of this and actually you don't understand what the distress is trying to tell you maybe and how to also find ways to to get through it like you said you can't you know like you were giving me an analogy of the of the children's story so again you know it's interesting how and, and response to lots of different problems growing up people have this response which actually is wrong really i mean I- I don't, you know, I'm a great fan of acceptance. That doesn't mean I think we should accept everything that comes our way and just roll over and go, oh, well, here we are. I'm just accepting that I'm no. But there is a a component where we go, you know what? I'm going to accept right now that I'm feeling quite anxious. So I'm going to, I know that's where I'm at. Given that that's where I'm at, what do I need to do to help myself get through the next few minutes, hour, rest of the day? in the best way I can. That's the point of acceptance. 
so that you're not trying to fight all the time. It, again, it's about opening up. It's about opening up pathways through for me, you know, because when we're trying to fight and push away, we kind of, we're just kind of almost running blindly rather than saying, okay, where, where can I see what's available to me right now? Given that this is how I'm feeling, what's available, both in terms of the practicalities of what's available and what's available in terms of how much I can give or I can do or I can, I can engage right now. Anna, thank you so much for joining us. It was great to talk to you and to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me.